Our sermon text reading is from Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him. And again, as, his was, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Well, before we jump into this passage, um, sometimes I'll do sort of a uh, family moment sort of thing like that. And I want to mention to you an event coming up here, an event, really a retreat. It's going to be at the uh, retreat center up about an hour north here called the Wings Retreat Center. And uh, the retreat is called Abide. It's going to be led by myself and Kirsten. And we want to invite you to two nights, three days away. The $250 covers uh, most of the meals as well as your lodging there. It's actually a discount from what it would normally cost you. Uh, but what we're going to do, we're going to invite you to hold space out in the country. We need to get out of the city sometimes to do that. Hold space and just to listen for God and listen to God. We invite you to be part of that. We're going to do what's called spiritual direction work. And we're going to invite you to listen for the voice of God. We'll meet with you one-on-one as part of that. There will also be a little teaching involved as well. But primarily, the focus is to create space for you to be alone with God. It, only about 12 to 15 people are, are going to be on this retreat. And so let me encourage you, if this is what you want to do, do not wait to sign up. Uh, go ahead and go online. You can do it now. I'll even let you do that for the first minute or two of the sermon here if you need to. But let me encourage you, go ahead and sign up, because uh, once we fill that space up, depending on the housing ranges, whether we have married people, single people, 12 to 15 in there, that's going to be the size of the retreat. So again, September 28th through 30th. Now, if you are brand new, uh, you will not know this, that for the last year, we've been in a series in the Gospel of Mark called The Story of Jesus. And believe it or not, because we're going verse by verse, essentially, we're only halfway through, or a little bit more than halfway through. We're on the, on the back nine of the uh, 18 holes here uh, with Mark. And, uh, and we come, uh, because it is verse by verse, we, it means that we come to some pretty tough passages, right? And this is one of them, needless to say. By the way, sometimes some of the other pastors here on staff uh, will come up, and they'll, the, one of the first things they'll say was, well, I can't believe Scott assigned me this passage. This is a tough one. Well, I'm putting a moratorium on that as of today. They cannot say that anymore as we talk about divorce. You know, this is a, obviously, it goes without saying. This is not just a relevant passage for our times. but It's a deeply personal passage for us. There's some of you, uh, this is your story. You've been through divorce. Maybe you're single now. Maybe you're remarried. But you know this firsthand. 
and, and many of you, as I, as I know your stories, as I've met with you over the last 16, 17 years, I know that many of you come from homes where your parents were divorced. And so this is not just something that's out there. And of course, we all have friends and family uh, beyond those stories. And so this is something that hits home for, for all of us in here. Right? And, and so, but what I want to say initially here in the introduction is this. This passage is not as much about divorce, though it is, about marriage. And Jesus himself, you, you saw that here when the passage was being read. And so we cannot talk about divorce without also talking about marriage, what it is. You know, of all the different institutions that we have in our society, civic organizations, schools, government, churches, the very first one instituted by God was what? Marriage. It was designed by God. And, you know, if you want to operate something, you better know it's designed. Right? And, and you know, it's, if you want to pack a parachute, you know, go sky jumping or something like that, right? You better learn how to pack that parachute according to the design because if you don't, things are going to go south in a fast way here. And so it is so true also with marriage. So as we think about what is divorce, as we think about what happens when people go through that. But we need to also be thinking about that. That's what Jesus does, and that's what we're also going to do today. Now, I also am very mindful of the fact that because of the nature of this topic today, let me tell you, James 3.1 puts it this way. This is the writer of James talking about those who teach and preach. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It means that we're held to a higher standard. Why? Because your lives are at stake. Because your relationships, like for those of you who think, man, I believe in the Word of God. I believe that, that the church should say something to us on these subjects. Then you better hope that those who are leading you, those who are teaching for you, like, are, are held to a higher standard. And let me tell you, I've spent more time on this passage this week than virtually any other sermon I've done in a long, long time. But, but I come with you humility, saying as I look at this subject, this is what I want to bring to you today. As I understand what Jesus is doing here, what Jesus is saying, I think there's a challenge for us all in here, whether we're uh, divorced, remarried, never married before and single right now, or, or we're married and we're at different places of happiness within marriage. I think there's a challenge for all of us in here to have ears to listen and to respond. Two things we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at our approach. When I say our approach, I mean humanity's approach from thousands of years ago all the way to the present? And then secondly, what is Jesus' approach to this topic? What I think you're going to see is a story of hope and redemption as a result of what Jesus goes after here. So let's begin here in verses 1 and 2. And it it says this, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful? For a man to divorce his wife. Now, the key word here in the first two verses is the word test. And so what the Pharisees are doing, they're not coming with curiosity, the religious leaders. They're not saying, you know, Jesus, I'm curious. I've been wrestling with this issue. I'm curious. How do you, what do you think about this? They're trying to trap him. Now, why it's so important to understand that is where he's located. It says that for the last several verses, as it were, last week and this week, we can see that the, Jesus is beginning to move towards Jerusalem. Jesus knows that the cross is inevitable. It's coming just a few weeks from now in terms of chronology. And as he makes his way down to Jerusalem, he passes through an area of Judea called Perea. Now, this is important because remember early on in Mark's gospel, 
We talked about John the Baptist. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? He was imprisoned, right? And remember why he was imprisoned and why he eventually was decapitated? It was because publicly he was rebuking the local king, King Herod. Why was he rebuking local King Herod? Because he had divorced his wife and married Herodias. And Herodias had had divorced her husband. And so now they're in this new marriage that breaks the Mosaic law. And so John the Baptist goes after them publicly and he loses his head for it. Now, the Pharisees, as Jesus is traveling through the same area where John the Baptist was ministering, led by King Herod, now you can see where this is going. The Pharisees want the same thing to happen to Jesus right there in Judea. And so they seek to trap him. But Jesus is never easily trapped. So look at verses 3 through 5. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, what Jesus does and what we should always do with any subject is go on a journey through the Bible. And what Jesus does is he takes them all the way back to different places in the Old Testament. But the one that's being referenced here right now where it says Moses allowed a certificate of divorce is a specific passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that to you now, because I think in, in, going, in tackling this, it'll help you understand where does Jesus land, where should we land on the issue of divorce. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if she then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife and her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. See how clear that is? I'm going to pray now. We're done. Can you imagine? What in the world is going on? Well, in the ancient Near East, in a patriarchal society, the only thing the woman could bring into marriage, aside from herself, was her dowry. Now, the dowry, you know, today we might think, ah, like stock market, portfolio investments, that sort of thing. Sheep and goats. This is basically what it was, right? Like, you like my goats? You like my sheep? Yeah, I offer these to you, right? so bad, sorry. Uh, And so this is what she brings into marriage, but this is all that she has. And guess what happens when she divorces? Who gets the dowry? Patriarchal society. We know the answer. Not her. And so in this, what's called case law, if then sort of thing like that, what happens if, if she were to, you know, at that point, well, she would go back to her family home because those women back then, they didn't have any means to support themselves. They were completely vulnerable without protection, only their families. And so, so another dowry is lined up in another arranged marriage. And, and she goes into that, and the same thing happens to her again. And what Moses says is enough is enough. God is drawing a line in the sand. No more. Now, I want you to see something interesting here. The word indecency, it's... it's <laughs> see, 
and this is no different than it is today, but back then you had different schools of interpretation. What does that word mean? Right? You, you go to graduate school. Let's say you go for economics. You have the Keynesian school over here. You have the Friedman school in philosophy. You have different approaches, classical and other types. Of, uh, of, you, know, so you had these schools of thought. Well, that was no different for the Bible as well, or what we now call the Old Testament for them. Right? And, so, and so you had three schools, primarily three schools, that, that interpreted this passage differently. You had the school of Shammai. Now, this, these were the conservatives. And the school of Shammai says this word indecency, it only refers to adultery. Like, like in the cases of adultery, uh, this is when then she can be uh, dismissed, as it were. She can be divorced. Right? But there are two other schools, and let me just say this now. The school of Shammai was not nearly as popular as the other two schools of thought. And in a patriarchal society, I think you'll understand why. The school of Hillel held that if a woman burns dinner, spoils dinner, it's worthy of divorce. I kid you not. And the school of Akiba, Rabbi Akiba, said this. They said, if you see a woman who's more beautiful you can divorce your first wife. This was what was happening to Israel, God's people. By the time of Jesus, Hillel and Akiba were the dominant paradigms. So, what's going on? Jesus is looking back and he's saying, you are mocking what God has designed. This was never intended. And so I'm drawing a line in the sand of protection against those who, who have no protection. Those who are most vulnerable in society. And so, hence why the certificate was offered. Saying, like, this is, I've been divorced, and so like, this, is, this is her protection to go back to her family without shame as much as possible in a shame culture. You follow? And so what do we do with this today? Right? Our great Scott, a little context there on Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24, but, but what about now? See, this is 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. Now, 2,000 years after the time of Jesus, I want to say this. We're really not that much different. See, now again, only men, but for men, it's basically no-fault divorce. Easy divorce. That's the world that we live in today. As of 2010, every state in the Union has no-fault divorce. Why is that important to understand? Because prior to that, the government, at least state governments, had a sense of moral sensibility about when a divorce is legitimate and when it's not. But as of 2010, every state in the union has said, look, we don't take a moral stance anymore on divorce. If you want a divorce, if both parties agree to it, then this is permitted. Which begs this question, what do we do with this in terms of our culture surrounding divorce? This is where I think all people, and I think a lot of you in here tonight, today, this morning, are saying, man, I'm hungry and thirsty to say, what do you believe? Like, is the church any different? Is it any different? And let me say this. In the last 30 years, we've seen a shift around divorce. Not just the no fault, but also a moral component, a stance upon divorce. And it's this, that divorce is something good. There was a book written by Dr. Constance Ahrens in 1995 by that name, The Good Divorce. And she argued that a divorce can be a positive. It can be a good. Now, what do we, what do, we do with that? Let me, let me just say this very importantly here, what I'm about to say. I'm suggesting to you that there's no such thing as a good divorce. But what I am saying is that's different from saying, is sometimes divorce necessary? 
Make sure you understand the difference there. Some things are sometimes necessary. We're going to see Jesus say here in a second. But that doesn't mean they're good. In other words, divorce, wherever it is, even if they're biblical grounds, is the lesser of two evils. It may be necessary for the purpose of protection, but it's never a good thing. How do we know that? Well, there's research that was done um, by a woman named Elizabeth Marquardt. I think I got that last name right. And she wrote The Myth of a Good Divorce is the name of her book. She's written articles on this as well. And, and what she has shown is that, that far from this being good, it is always a tragedy, she says. She herself being a child of divorce. And in this book, to basically sum up the research, you're more than welcome, of course, to go and, and read what she says in full. But she says this, that a child of a home where there's acrimony, but both parents are together. So there's conflict. There's relational conflict. Experience less emotional distress than those in the best of homes that have been divorced. That is the, kind of the headline on her research of 1,500 young people over a set of years. She says, Dr. Aaron's premise is flawed from the very beginning, and here's why, she says. It's because what she's doing is looking through the eyes of adults without thinking about the impact on children in particular. There's an article written by a man named Stephen Audubato in Plow Magazine. It came out just actually in January. And he talks about his own story, about his own struggles to understand. You know, he was told, like, this is a good thing. And, and, uh, but then he began, as he became an adult, he began to wrestle with whether that, that was true or not. I want to just uh, read one paragraph from his article about how his thinking was changing. He said, this began to change when I came to terms with the fact that my parents' divorce was not some random, unfortunate event that just happened, but rather a decision that deprived me of something I needed and had a right to. As much as my parents loved me and worked tirelessly to make their divorce a good one, I was starving for something to which I no longer had access. I can't tell you how many times I've heard friends say something similar. That there's something that, that, that they couldn't access anymore. And in Mark Hart's, the, the actual name of the book here is uh, between two worlds. And she says that there's a split that's unavoidable that happens in the psyche of a child that experiences divorce. There's a split that they can't get, that you can't put those two things back together again in this split. I, one of my best friends, he said that when, when his parents were three years old, sorry, when he was three years old, uh, his parents split. And he says, Scott, it was one of the most civil and cordial divorces imaginable. My dad, he just moved one mile away to ensure that I was able to stay in the same schools. And, and they would, like my birthday parties, they would both be there. Like it was incredibly civil. He says, but when I became an adult, I realized just how unbelievably insecure I was in the best of situations. My parents worked tirelessly, almost out about his uh, same words there. He says, my parents worked tirelessly to make it as positive as possible. And yet in the best of circumstances, I was split through the middle of my soul. I didn't know who I was. Struggling with insecurity. Struggling with a sense of foundation and belonging. This is how significant this issue is. And of course, the same thing happens for children, happens for adults who've been through divorce themselves. And for those of you who've been divorced, you, I don't need to tell you that, you know that. It cuts to the core of your soul. 
And so, so no wonder Jesus says, look, it's not just about divorce, but it's about, about what should be here. And so if this has been our approach, sort of just fast and loose in our culture where we sort of are, become tolerant and say, oh, whatever happens, happens, without really thinking about the ramifications through and through, in my opinion. How does Jesus respond? Well, basically he says this. It's about the vows that we take. And it's not just our, our horizontal vows, but the foundation for those vows is vertical. So listen to what he says here in verses 6 through 9. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. There's a lot of language in here that goes along these lines where he talks about joined together, two becoming one. Let no one separate these things. This is the language of a permanent union. And so what Jesus does, he says, look, Pharisees, little religious leaders, you're, you're focused on the wrong thing. You're going through the, the ins and outs of, well, is this okay? Is this okay? He says, look, you're, you're missing the point here. You, you can't go there. You first have to start with understanding what did God intend for marriage? What did he, and he goes all the way back to creation. Whenever Jesus or Paul or anyone goes back to creation, he's saying this is a design principle. This is something that has been designed by God himself, the artist He's shaped it and molded it to look like this. And basically, uh, he says, look, it's no longer about separate entities, no longer about separate people, but two becoming one, and together they create something different. A number of years ago, uh, I officiated a wedding here, and I loved what this one couple did. They took two jars of sand, and, and they took a third jar that was empty, and they took one set of sand and the other sand, and they poured it in together. And in doing so, they create new patterns and new colors. And, and what it was doing symbolically was saying that together we create something that wasn't there if we were separate. I got a picture. Uh, I love this picture. I saw this. Uh, this is a moon sand. You know, your kids play with moon sand, right? Uh, you can make it at home. Did you know that? Oh, there you go. But I love this. You take two colors, yellow and blue. And look what happens when you take those, the sand and you, and you put it together. It creates a whole new color. That didn't exist before. But when you bring in union, you create something that wasn't there. I think it's a beautiful picture of what marriage is. You didn't think that moon sand and marriage would ever be connected together, but I just did that here. And so <laughs> this is what it was intended to be, to create something new. And what's fascinating is you look at the picture and you see, oh, I see a little blue. I, I see a little yellow. But the, what's down there is the green. In marriage, you have your personality Kirsten and I have been married for 23 years, and believe me, my staff, because she's on staff, my staff knows this, we have very different personalities, right? We do. Like that, you should see how we think about time, for instance. We cannot be more opposite than when you think about the issue of time. But we have very different personalities, and after 23 years, guess what? She still has the same personality. I do too. But together, we have something that wasn't there before. And our kids are literally the seed of that union. And they, they reflect the union of mom and dad. When we took our vows 23 years ago, uh, my favorite line in our vows, because she's here, when I was doing this beforehand, I didn't do this. But I look at her. Um, 
And I said, I leave no room in my mind to ever leave you. And, um, and that's covenant language. And, and that language is there to remind us that, 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 that when you choose to get married, there are going to be times when the, the emotions are not there, or at least the, the emotions that you're hoping for. There are going to be times when the feeling is gone. And what Jesus says here is it's that, that marriage is not about your feelings of love. That love is something more than emotion. That love is something more than feeling. But it's commitment. It's saying that, that when, when the rubber meets the road, I'm not going anywhere. If I ever wrote a book on marriage, I'm not saying that I will, but if I ever did, I would entitle it The Crucible of Marriage. Because the crucible is this, this design, this invention that takes pressure, fire, heat, and it shapes and molds something that wasn't there, that could only be there because of pressure and heat. You see... That's what marriage was designed to do, is to transform us. And yes, you can be transformed apart from marriage. Right? For those of you who are single, like, I want you to hear that loud and clear, that marriage is not the only way to be transformed. It's very important for me to say. But, very, but very, just as clearly, wherever there is marriage, it's for the purpose of shaping and transforming us. And then you have kids, and that shapes you further, <laughs> transforms you further. You don't realize just how selfish you are until you have kids. And you're like, that gets, that gets challenged in some fresh new ways. But Jesus is doing something. And so this is why he goes here. And then he says, look, I want you to see what is the outcome. If you have a vision, a covenant vision, by the way, there's a radical difference between a contract and a covenant. Let me stress that for just one, uh, for one minute here. You know, a lot of people approach marriage as sort of a contractual agreement, right? And so you know this, those of you who are in the business world or perhaps not. I mean, just anytime you've ever signed a contract, you know, there's, there's always fine print, isn't there? It's like, what happens? Now, now, can you break a contract? Yes, you can. But if you do, there are fines to be paid. Maybe it's a different kind of responsibility that, that you incur, right? But there, there's an escape clause in every contract. But what Jesus is saying is, like, marriage doesn't have that. That's why it's so different. A covenant is a permanent union. Just as, as two become one, as you pour sand into a jar and you create new colors. No easier should it be to divorce, in essence, than it is to pick every piece of sand out and separate the colors again. This is the picture that Jesus is getting at. Listen to what he says here. This, I want to show you the outcome of what happens if we take marriage seriously like this. He quotes, remember, this is a quote from Genesis. Here's, here's that actual quote in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And here's the outcome. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Jesus is saying two things here. Number one, he's saying the outcome of marriage is vulnerability and trust. What a, one, of the, one of the beautiful things that happens in a, in a marriage. Now, can this happen in friendship? Absolutely. When I was in seminary, first time through, second time through, I was married at that point, but first time through, uh, one of my roommates, um, he, he, he really had the courage to confront me about some, just uh, some sheer selfishness on my part. And it, uh, let me tell you, I, I still know where I was in the room when we had this conversation 30 years later. I mean, it cut me to the core. It convicted me of just what a jerk I've been to him and some other people. Man, and it, man, 
You talk about a friendship being built that day. Man, we trusted each other because we went through conflict together. So it's not just a marriage where we can do this. But very clearly, in the most intimate union where there's, you know, even physical connection, union, sexual relationship, it's, it's to be a picture of how intimate trust should be. And what happens in a relationship where, well, there's, there's security. I'm now, after 23 years, I mean, it didn't take 23 years, by the way. But, but you know, I, like we can have a relationship where I, she knows my warts and all. And yet she loves me. And vice versa. Like we, we, we have this sort of relationship where I can be me. I can rest in her presence. Knowing that the, when she sees my warts, it's for better and for worse. I leave no room in my mind to ever leave you. And so that frees me to be more honest. It frees me to be more vulnerable, to not keep secrets back. Like the, the essence of a, of a marriage is, is, you know this, is, is when, when you're able to share with the person that you love the most, uh, your most vulnerable places, those things that otherwise would be called secrets. But it's not just we as husbands and wives that, that receive that gift of vulnerability that gives a sense of groundedness and belonging. But for those of us who have kids, it's for your children as well. Think about what I just said a few minutes ago about the children to divorce, what the research says, the quote from Stephen Adubato, and so forth. Now, I, um, I'll never forget when one of my, I won't tell you who, but one of my daughters, when, uh, when she was younger, I was in my study one day, and, and she came in, and she looked at me, and she said, Daddy, I need to ask you a question. Okay, hon. If the house was on fire and you could only save one of us, me or mommy, who would it be? Are you kidding me? You just asked me that question. How's I was thinking about that? But let me tell you, I didn't miss a beat. And I looked at her eye to eye and I said, well, you're mommy, of course. And she beamed ear to ear. She said, thanks, Daddy. And she left. She didn't say, what? No. Why? And by the way, same thing happened to Dan Allender. I was reading something from him. Like, and, like when one of his kids, same thing happened. I couldn't believe it. You know, lightning struck twice. And like I had the same question asked of me. But let me tell you why she, she didn't go, no way. Well, why aren't you thinking of me? Because she understood. If mom and dad are good, they're secure. Foundation's there for me and my security. You see how that works? Our kids are always watching us. Always. What do they say? What do they sense about mom and dad, husband and wife? Is there a foundation of security, of belonging, a place where they can be vulnerable? So that's one thing. And the second thing I think here, the outcome is just friendship. I think it's what's intended for us to see here in this, in this more perfect union, as it were, is that we're designed to be friends. But the, the, it's like a Venn diagram. There's an overlap. And again, also, as, as I said with my roommate, first time through seminary, friendship should be part of the equation for those of us who are single. But for those of you who are married, the vision here is of, of not just you know, putting up with each other, but actually having a life of delight together where we can say we are fast friends. Soulmates through and through. We enjoy each other. We play together, right? It's one of the things I, I love that, that Kirsten and I get to do. We love to travel. Some of you know. Uh, she makes some amazing cocktails. 
Uh, there's a w- wonderful ways that we play together. And, and, and that's, the, that's when, when two people are vulnerable and secure, and there's a foundation, it leads to play. It leads to friendship. But I know what's on your mind right now. You're saying, okay, I'm with you so far, Scott. At least I hope that's what you're saying. But what about the exceptions? Are there exceptions? Now, where we conclude, verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, on the face of it, you look at this and say, oh my gosh, it doesn't sound like there's any exception at all. Now, this is, if you hear nothing else, but I think you have heard other things, please hear this though. Hey, please hear this. Often what happens, and I see this happen all the time in the evangelical church, often what happens is that we read Scripture as an individual without community. And then what we do is we, we separate a text and we try to make an argument from one text in Scripture. Never a good idea. Notice that Jesus, when he's talking about this, doesn't just deal with one thing. He goes to Genesis. He goes to Deuteronomy and other places and other passages. You can see all over the place. He's doing a Bible study. I had a professor in, in seminary. He said this, that, that a, a isolated text is a pretext to take something out of context. We'll say that again. A singular text can become a pretext to take something out of context. And if it helps you remember it, I was the one who said that, actually, not my professor. I'm kidding. Okay. So you know how that happens after a while, it just becomes yours, that sort of thing like that. But this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is very clear here. Don't isolate the text. Why is that important? Because look, if you were just to read verses 10 through 12, you might say, no exceptions. What gives? Context. Where did he go earlier? Remember? Deuteronomy 24. Now, what is he doing? He's been with the Pharisees publicly. Now he's with, alone with his disciples, and he's going back, right, in this private teaching to do some further teaching. What is he saying here? All those men who for any reason imaginable were divorcing their wives and leaving them unprotected? He says, in the eyes of God, that is adultery. When they leave and they marry another, in the eyes of God, they're still married to that wife that they dismissed for selfish reasons. So when Jesus in verses 10 through 12 is tackling this and it's like, oh my gosh, what's he saying here? It's specifically a reference back to Deuteronomy 24. This is the reason why we have this in the passage. You see, so important here for, for us to see that context here. But Scott, aren't there exceptions? And the answer is, yes, there are. Now, why do we know that? This is what's fascinating. Remember, I said this earlier in another passage here in the Gospel, that we have four Gospels. And I'm so grateful that God gave us four, not just one. Because what happens is, it's sort of like this. Imagine that a house is on fire. And, and so you go to that, that house, and, uh, or your reporter, and there's three other reporters with you. And all four of you are, are looking at, at the scene, right? There's a, there's a fire marshal there. Uh, there's the occupants of the home, and, and they're in front of the microphone, perhaps, of a local television station, and, and giving the report of what happened. And, and there's tears, and there's wailing, and there's tragedy, and they're making statements. Now, if all four reporters went back to their newspapers... What would happen? Would they write verbatim the exact same thing? You know the answer to the question. The answer is no. Why? Because they heard different things. They were there. Weren't they at the right scene? Did they hear the same interview with the the local TV station? Of course. But not only that, they have four different audiences in the newspapers. 
And so they might nuance things differently. Here's why that's so important. The exact same scene happens in Matthew chapter 19. But there, Matthew reports that after he says what he did, Jesus in verse 9 says, Divorce is not permissible except in the cases where there's adultery. This is the exact same scene. But Matthew nuances in a way that for Mark's audience is not the focus. That's important to see here. But beyond that, do we have other exceptions? The answer is yes. Apostle Paul, speaking to the church of Corinth, the church that was filled with lots of chaos, specifically around sexuality and marriage. In chapter 7, verse 15, he says, If an unbelieving spouse deserts a believing spouse, they are free to remarry. And so what the, what the church has said for centuries is that there are exceptions. There may be the lesser two evils. But there are exceptions where, where there's a sense that the, the, the bond has been irrevocably broken. But this is so important. Let me, let me make sure I say this. Even in those instances where there are biblical grounds to divorce, and we believe here at City Church that can include issues such as abuse, for instance. You need to know that this is where we stand on that. That we believe that there are exceptions that, that include desertion. Why? Because, because what Paul says is that if a believing spouse is abusive or deserts, abandons, adultery, all this stuff, and they don't repent, treat them as an unbeliever, is what the actual scriptures say. And so, what, thank God, it's been rare that we've had to do this in 17 years, but this is what we have practiced. But even in the cases where someone says, well, well, you can't do this because I'm a Christian, and say, well, no. You know, according to Scripture here, your lack of repentance for how you've deserted, for your abuse. And please hear that there, there is certainly a clearly, even with Elizabeth Marquardt's research, she says, look, it's very clearly that even if there are times when divorce is necessary, or excuse me, it's, not, it's never good, but because it is sometimes necessary, she cites abuse as one of those situations where it's even better for children to not be in an abusive home. So please hear, like, there are clearly exceptions and, and one of us, myself, or we'd love to sit down and talk with you further about how do we nuance these, these situations? What do we do in these, in these hard moments? I was just with a pastor this week. He said, man, we had a really easy one. A guy, guy left his wife and, and married his secretary and moved to California. That's an easy one. But we got this other situation. We got this other situation where, where, where she's saying there's abuse going on. But, man, we've been looking. We, we, so far, we haven't been able to find any evidence. Let me tell you, pray for your elders. Whether you're visiting this church and you have elders elsewhere or you're part of this church, pray for your elders. Pray for your leaders here. Because we're held to a higher standard. And we, we're trying to discern in every scenario and situation that we fit. Like, how do we care well? How do we shepherd well? People's lives are at stake here. But it seems to me from, from, my, from my handling of the text, Jesus and Paul, and remember 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17 says that all Scripture is God breathed. It's from Him. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, for correcting, and for training in all areas of righteousness here. So it's not just the words of Jesus, the red letter edition. It's all of Scripture is given to us to illuminate us, to understand these situations. So clearly there are exceptions. So here's what I want to do in closing. I want to put to you on the screen here the takeaways from today. I don't normally do this, but today I feel like I need to. I want to make sure that we're very clear. Here's the first one. You always... When speaking of divorce, you always begin with marriage. What is marriage? What is the foundation? Only then can we understand what goes wrong and how do we deal with that. Second, divorce is absolutely permissible, but it is severely limited. And we should have the approach 
Thirdly here, that it's never good. It's the lesser of two evils. It's sort of like an amputation. Should a doctor do it sometimes? Absolutely. To save your life. Absolutely. But, it, but it's painful. It, it's disfiguring. It changes you, as it were. Is it necessary? You bet, to save your life. Sometimes divorce can be just that for us. It can be permissible. It can be necessary. It can save our lives. But it should be incredibly rare. Why? Because of the fourth thing. Even where there are grounds for biblical divorce, the trajectory shouldn't be divorce, but repair. It should be reconciliation. Now, is it always possible? No. If you don't have two repentant sinners, it's not possible, usually. But this is the goal. Why do we know that's the goal? Because that was God's goal with us. This is where I want to conclude. The good news for you and for me is that we have a God who loves to redeem through pain. We serve a Lord who in His righteousness fought for us and sought our repentance, our reconciliation. You know what's fascinating? Jeremiah 3.8. You, know you, know you know what God says about Himself? He says that He's divorced. Isn't that fascinating? Did you know that? God Himself says that He's been through divorce. You know what that means? For those of you who've been through divorce, you have a God who knows something about your pain. I kid you not, if the Scriptures are true, you can hold fast to that. He knows something about what you've been through if you've been through divorce. But you know what's also so good? When you get the New Testament, what do we see in Jesus? Fully God, fully human. What does He do? He holds to His vows. You know what happened when He was in, in the desert? He was being tested. He was being entrapped. And you know what he did? He said, I'm committing to my vows. And you know what he does on the night that he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? When he had ample opportunity to run. He had every opportunity to seek an escape clause, but because of his covenant vows to you and to me, to the bride of Christ, to his church, he stayed. He had the strength to stay. Which means what? This is the hope. This is an encouragement. It means that in the hardest places in your marriage, He can give you the strength to stay. He can give you the strength because you're saying, I don't know. I, I don't have emotions here. I don't have feelings for them. I've been down this road a million times already. He can give you the strength to stay when there's no strength left. Why? Because He defeated sin and death. Because He went to the cross and three days later was resurrected. It was the power of of the resurrection that changes us as disciples. That changes, that gives us strength to face inevitable conflict and stress in those intimate relationships. Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's true about Jesus? Because if you believe that's true about Jesus, it means that you actually have access to that power in the most difficult of relationships in your life. My prayer is that through the church of Jesus Christ, Divorce might become exceedingly rare. That should be what we long for. That should be what we all hope for. But in the places where it is necessary, may we be a church of compassion. May we be a church of mercy and goodness to surround those who tragically have befell a situation where they need community, where they need hope, where they need transformation. Let us be that church. Not afraid to stand strong and orthodox on positions like this.
but with compassion, with mercy for everyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word that trains us in righteousness. Some passages of your word are more difficult than others. Some we resist more than others. Lord, give us space. Give us grace. Give us compassion. Give us mercy. Give us your heart. And Lord, may our hearts melt in the crucible of your love for us. May you take difficult circumstances and situations. Would you transform us? What do you transform us into? The likeness of Christ. That we might become more and more like your disciples, Jesus. Lord, give us wisdom as leaders of your church to come alongside well those who are going through distress, alienation, and difficult places in marriage and beyond. May we be that church. May we be those people who love well through and through to the core, to the root of who we are. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And now we take some time to respond to God's word, first through confession. And I think the word that stuck out to me and in our passage is the word hardness. Divorce often begins in heart, with the hardness. And then even as a child, you begin to participate in the hardness going on in the family, and it becomes normal. And it's something we take with us. And so in confession, could we now ask the Spirit to examine the places where we remain hard and distant, where hardness has grabbed our hearts and even could be in our marriages or in our friendships or in, in the places God's called us. So take some time now. We're going to give you some space for the Spirit to reveal that and for personal confession, and then I'll move us to corporate confession in a moment. And now, church, let's pray this prayer of confession together as his church with one voice. God, the truth is, regardless of whether we have been divorced, divorced and remarried, or whether we are married or never married, we all have not kept our vows to you. We have rebelled against you and have damaged others in the process, as we have been damaged by others as well. Forgive us, God. Give us your vision for marriage and shower us with grace and mercy when we experience failure within marriage. Jesus, thank you for perfectly keeping your covenant vows to us that we might experience both hope and redemption in a broken world. Amen. I love First John tells us that if we, it's what Christian quoted, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness. Receive the softening that he gives through forgiveness. Amen. Now we go to the table.